Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource for Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to call this a mailbag episode, uh, really for lack of my coming up with a more creative name. If you have suggestions uh, for what we might call this episode of the podcast, we'd like to do uh, more of these in the future. Uh, please let me know. We're going to call it Mailbag for now. I made a call for questions several weeks ago on Twitter and on Facebook and got some really great responses. And uh, I thought I would try to work through a few of these questions in uh, regular episodes uh, every few months or so. And uh, if this goes well, we'll keep doing it. Um, Please remember to think of questions along the lines of practical, pastoral and devotional. Uh, Some of the questions about higher criticism and all those sorts of things are a little bit above my pay grade and outside the scope of the podcast. Um, But we've got some good questions to start off with, and we'll go ahead and get started. First of all, from Twitter comes the question, what is the place of recruiting help from people who are currently members of other churches in church revitalization efforts? How should one wisely and sensitively go about it? So essentially the question is, I want to revitalize a church and I need some help. And what I would like to do is ask some pastors or ask Christians from other churches to leave their church and come to mine to help in the work of revitalization. And actually, this is a really good idea and a really good kingdom-minded idea. It's similar along the lines of church planting, someone planting a church with a core group of worshipers, those who want to be on mission with you together uh, in order to begin building a critical mass and what have you. Um, But as the questioner is asking, it really does need to be conducted in a sensitive way. So, to avoid the uh, big sin of of church member poaching, of sheep poaching, uh, the first thing that you ought to do is actually speak to the pastor or pastors of larger churches who perhaps have members that they can spare, in particular members who may uh, currently live in the area where you are doing this revitalization work. Uh, it's actually one of the first things that um, church planters ought to do, actually, in picking locations to build a new work or establish a new work, to meet with other area pastors, to let them know that you're coming, to let them know that um, you want to join them in the mission that they're already on, um, that you have no plans of poaching members and that sort of thing, that you're wanting to actually reach the lost for Jesus and be on the same team. It kind of builds a good camaraderie, opens lines of communication. So if you're interested in having other churches' members uh, join you in this work, um, perhaps identify some of these churches that may be more mission-minded, um, that may seem to be teeming with um, you know mature members who would understand the work and would be assets, and meet with their pastors, first of all, to sort of explain your vision and to make the request. Um, you know, obviously the pastor doesn't own anybody, uh, and the pastor can't send anybody um, either, someone who doesn't want to be sent, in other words. But to just sort of clear the air, let them know what you're asking about, and ask permission to approach certain people, perhaps even ask for recommendations. Um, I think most pastors, um, when approached this way, 
uh, would not find it offensive. If anything, um, you know, putting myself in those shoes, um, I would find it really uh, complimentary. I would find it really affirmational that we're doing a good job raising leaders, uh, attracting leaders, developing leaders, that we have good, mature members, that other folks are in the good way envious of. And so while, you know, obviously, again, you couldn't send somebody out or promise, you know, certain people uh, to the worker revitalization, you could say, hey, look, here are some people that you may want to talk to. They're already living in your area or they would have a mind to do this kind of work and might would be assets and give them permission to approach uh, those they may, ha- uh, you know, be interested in. And then um, what you could also do on on the end of, uh, you know, being re- requested is actually approach some of your members yourself and say, look, there's a, a pastor in the area. He is wanting to do this work of revitalization, but he really needs help. And so in the same way that you would see as sending people from your church to a foreign land to be missionaries, see it as part of your church's mission um, perhaps in the near mission field to request or make a call that members of your church would be sent out to help a good brother in his revitalization effort. So what I would say is if you're the one doing the revitalization work, that the way that you would sensitively and wisely go about it is not to go uh, around a pastor or um, you know the shepherds of the church to, to, to try to get at these um, sheep that you think would be assets, but to talk to the pastors first, um, get their permission or their insight. Perhaps they have recommendations of people you haven't thought of. Uh, perhaps they can connect you with other churches, so on and so forth. Um, but then the other wise and sensitive thing that I would suggest is not to put all of your eggs in the basket of this won't happen if I don't have the A team from other churches, right? Um, you know, do what you can. Don't bank your revitalization future on being able to draw from other people's work. Um, but do the work of discipleship. It may um, you know, take you longer. You may have to move more slowly of establishing leaders that are native to that work. Um, but you know, don't overlook that. Don't, over, uh, uh, don't underestimate the potential for leadership as you make disciples there in the current context. So those are some bullet points. Obviously, there's a lot more to say, but um, we're going to move on to the next question here. Um, Also from Twitter comes the question, what should someone do if their church leadership takes a new direction that is seeker-sensitive, gospel light, and hires a senior minister dead set on not much else than getting numbers up? This this, uh, question, this almost three-part question, appears to have a lot behind it. Um, I think there's a there's a big story here. Um, the first thing I would say, as a known critic of so-called seeker-sensitive ministry or attractional ministry, is to really make sure that this is actually what is taking place. Sometimes there are um, changes made in worship style and what have you that are things that can be lived with, right? They just don't meet your preferences. Perhaps song choices are different. Perhaps for you know even a, an approach to preaching isn't the way it's always been done, and it has a feel of some kind of deficiency. And perhaps it's not as strong as it was before, um, or you know it's not as robust, or whatever it is. Um, but make sure this is actually a real deficiency worth being utterly concerned about, and not just sort of the perception of someone new doing new things. Um, many times people react because change can be really jarring. 
And so please hear that from someone who is a critic of attractional ministry, um, certainly not a defender of gospel-deficient preaching, uh, of worship songs that uh, do not exalt God and do not have gospel content richly uh, placed in them. Um, But, you know, be circumspect about this. Really see if it's something that's actually taking place. Further, if it is something that's actually taking place, there is a demonstrable substantive change in the ministry style, the ministry philosophy of the church, such that the gospel is being obscured. Um, I still would urge you to stay as long as you can. Uh, You know, I don't take leaving off the table here because to obscure the gospel is a real thing and a dangerous thing and something that actually weakens the church. But to the extent that you're able to make a good and gentle and winsome case for gospel centrality. Um, you know, it's not an easy thing, um, and it's, uh, you know, not an easily navigated thing for church members to be, in a sense, missionaries to their own church. Um, but at least try that and see what a response might be. And then if it becomes clear that the church is on a very uh, committed trajectory away from um, clear teaching of the scriptures, um, away from the gospel as the motivation, as the power for transformation, and if the place is being sort of now led by marketers and, um, you know, style gurus and what have you, if this really isn't just a preferential change, but is a total change in ministry philosophy in in such a way that it's really a doctrinal shift, um, then if you're not able to stay and be an advocate for a return to the gospel, then it probably is the right thing to do to leave. Um, I have not seen uh, many churches change trajectories one way or another um, because of active members who serve as sort of contrarians to the leadership. The leadership is there to set vision uh, for good or for better. Um, you know, you may have ways of holding them accountable, but if they have been chosen by the you know, present structure, authority structure that you have to set vision for the church, it's not likely that over time um, you will be someone who will change that trajectory. And so if the church has sort of changed the game on you, it's a different church. And therefore, um, I think you should try to stay as long as you can. Um, and yet there probably will be a time if if things do not indicate um, substantive change that you ought to leave. This is not something to take lightly. Um, you've covenanted with this church, uh, especially if you're a member, and therefore to leave should not be a light thing. So I think there ought to be some kind of exit interviews in which uh, you, you, you don't complain, um, but you more explain and hope that makes sense. That's sort of a, a wise and I think sensitive way uh, to go about it. So um, don't take leaving off the table, but don't rush out the door, right? Okay, uh, thirdly, also from Twitter, how does one endure in a practical way when you're a lone pastor in a relatively small remote context? Um, for example, the questioner says, you're the only pastor with, perha- with perhaps a part-time administrator, um, but you're the only pastor And certain questions come to mind. How do you develop lay leaders? How much is too much for one guy? Um, How do you get elders to assist, et cetera? Well, there's a lot there. Um, I think the key thing that I would suggest, because this could really be an entire book, uh, but to give a one 
section of one podcast answer to this, uh, the one thing that I would key in on is this question, how much is too much for one guy? And it really is something to navigate strategically because if you're the lone pastor in a small or remote context, uh, you have to, by nature of the vocation, be a generalist. Uh, You're not able to delegate as many things away. So there's just more things you have to do. There's more hats to wear. You have to be more of a pastoral renaissance man, um, as it were. Therefore, it becomes um, even more important to maintain proper boundaries between rest and work, to incorporate more margin in your time. I'm going to speak to that in in a question um, after the break as well. Um, But really, what I would sort of hone in on for you is to make sure that you're taking time to rest, taking time with your family, because it's very possible and um, a very regular danger for the lone pastor in small or, as he says, remote contexts to become extremely overworked. Certainly pastors in larger churches with lots of staff become overworked as well. Um, But that's usually work style and temperament, personality, um, demand of the context, that sort of thing. For the lone pastor, it's simply um, there's, you know, you're a finite person and you're trying to spin a lot of plates. And so to the the extent that you're able um, to let maybe some plates fall, um, maybe some of those plates don't need to be in the air, uh, think through some of those things. Um, I'd also say uh, you need some friends, and, you know, it may not be possible for you to have the kind of friends within the church where you can just uh, be a a person and not a pastor. Um, I I wish that wasn't the case, and some people listening to this will say, you know, you just need to do that. Um, But those who have been in those shoes know that it's um, it's a lot easier said than done. So perhaps you need to reconnect with some folks who may not be local to you, but that you know you can be yourself with and talk to them regularly on the phone, over Skype. Um, Perhaps you can make a drive or what have you to do a visit every now and again. Um, It's you need to be with people where you can be transparent and and be real and even be confessional. Um, Hopefully that would be people within your church, um, but it's not always the case that it is. So um, don't become a disconnected, insular person. Um, that really is is a bad road to go down. Um, so think through that. Think through how much rest and margin you can apply to your week. Don't try to do too much, especially since you're probably already pulled in a thousand different directions. Uh, those are sort of the um, key points that I would give you. There's a lot more I could say, uh, but we'll save more for another day. All right, let's take a coffee break. And we'll hear from our hosts at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, Your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. Okay, we're back. I'm working through a few of your social media questions for our mailbag. Our first 
mailbag episode. And here's a good question to kind of come back from the break on. Uh, does Jared Wilson actually take a coffee break during the coffee break advertisement in the podcast? Uh, the answer is I'm, I'm drinking coffee usually the whole time that we're doing the podcast. So the coffee break in the middle is really for you, dear listener, because I know that when I'm speaking, um, you are so dialed in that you can't afford to do anything else. Um, even to take a sip of coffee would distract you from the nuggets of wisdom that I'm dropping into your ear. And uh, now we'll move on to some actually serious questions. Here is a question um, from Twitter um, from Nate, a listener to the podcast. And Nate says, how do you overcome the fear of offending people when you have a tendency to be a people pleaser? How do you overcome the fear of offending people when you have a tendency to be a to be a people pleaser? Well, Nate, um, I wish I knew the foolproof and consistent answer to this question. Um, I tend to be a people pleaser myself, and I'm also one of those who um, always assumes my default setting in regards to how other people think of me is to think that they think poorly of me, that I always have to prove myself. Um, you know, whenever I get emails that say, can we talk or, you know, text messages that say such things. Uh, my immediate assumption is that this is bad news. I've, I've really disappointed somebody. And nine times out of ten, I discovered that that's not the case. People just uh, they just want to have a conversation and chat or, or touch base or what have you. Um, but I am someone who really wants others to like him, sort of the George Costanza uh, you know, temperament there. Everyone must like me. And when you're a pastor, this is really um, a recipe for frustration and discouragement. And also it can be for um, being an unbiblical pastor, right? We are to please God rather than men. So how do you overcome the fear of offending people? Well, let's distinguish this question from how do you not offend people, right? So if you're a pastor holding fast to the word that is delivered to us in the gospel and all the implications thereof, you're going to offend people. Um, we would hope and think that it would only be people outside the church who would be offended, right? Because the message of the gospel is scandalous. It is offensive to those who are perishing. Um, but we also discover that many times the gospel, or at least its implications, and many of the things that go along with those implications, the way we apply ministry, the way that we preach, teach, um, even just our personality type perhaps, um, is different and rubs people the wrong way or is different than what they expect. If you're a pastor for any length of time, you discover um, that you disappoint people just by being you. <laughs> and I wish that wasn't the case. You're not trying to disappoint people. And, and, you know, sometimes you do do things wrong, but many times you're just making decisions the best you know how. Uh, they're not right or wrong decisions. They're just preferential decisions or what have you. Um, but because they're not the decisions that other people would make, you disappoint them. Therefore, you've offended them. So how do you uh, avoid that? You just can't. Um, if you want to avoid offending people, you need to get out of the ministry and work at something that doesn't involve anybody seeing or knowing or hearing, right? Um, so if you're trying to avoid offending people altogether, ministry is not the place for you. But how do you overcome the fear of offending people? The only way I know how to do this is a resolute fixation on the justification that you have in Christ. If you know that God is for you, that the eternal God, with all of his perfect holiness, his infinite justice, his wisdom that is above ours, when you know that that God, the God, is for you in Christ, 
it erodes the need to be approved of by men. Um, the approval of men is great when you can get it. And let's be honest, for most pastors, um, you, you, you're you going to have that. It's, it, it's very rare to be in a situation where everybody hates you. So sometimes we fixate on the few who are disappointed or discouraged or who are choosing to find offense. But if the offense is taken um, you know, based on good decisions or just based on you being you and, or your wife being herself or whatever it is, the way you avoid the, the fear of that, um, not the occurrence of it, you, you probably can't avoid the occurrence, but the way you avoid the fear of that is to fix your mind as often and as early as you can on the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Okay, Josh asks, um, dealing with the celebrity pastor culture or young seminarians wanting to be well-known like celebrity pastors, um, how do you minister in the midst of that? So it's not really a question, it's just a statement. Dealing with celebrity pastor culture, young seminarians wanting to be well-known like them. Um, so you're dealing with a pride issue, and to some extent, the way that this pride is worked against is not necessarily condemnation of celebrity pastors or constantly chastising these young men who want to be like these celebrity pastors, but actually throwing them into the ins and outs of everyday, ordinary ministry. Give these uh, young bucks who are just itching to be up on a platform, heard by thousands and hundreds of thousands, or whatever the case may be, uh, give them toilets to clean, uh, give them bulletins to pick up, give them copies to make, give them chairs to straighten, give them um, uh, babies' behinds to wipe, um, give them all of the stuff of normal ministry. Um, nine out of ten pastors are going to end up in churches um, where. Uh, they're going to have to do more than they ever thought that they were going to have to do. And they're going to have to do more of the things that they uh, aspire not to do. It's just the work of shepherding. So expose them to those things and um, watch either that pride sort of prevent them from digging in, which kind of um, works against their qualification for the pastorate, to be honest. You may actually uh, um, you know, thin the herd of these guys by doing this. Or it will erode some of that pride, and they'll begin to lean into the task of real ministry. Um, one of the things that I do with the residents at Liberty Baptist Church is remind them, um, and we kind of you know give this big call to them at the beginning of the residency, remind them that if they're too big for small ministry tasks, um, then they're too small for the residency. Um, we're watching them. The, the pastors are watching them. Uh, as the director of the residency, I'm watching them. And if they're above driving a parking shuttle or if they're above picking up trash in the hallway as they walk by or you know, cleaning dishes after the potluck or whatever it is, um, we notice that. And that shows that their interest is not really in, in, in nourishing of the sheep, of tending to the sheep, but of, you know, making a name for themselves. And that speaks to their qualification. It speaks to uh, their character, um, right? So most young seminarians or, or, you know, those who aspire to the celebrity pastor culture are thinking most times in terms of their gifts or their opportunities and their platform. What we want to do is expose them to ministry opportunities that develop their character and their heart for God's people. 
So that's what I would say. That's what I would say. Just sort of throw them into those things and watch this stuff either get worse to the point of disqualification or get better. Okay. All right. Finally, this is Jake via Facebook. And Jake asks, what did your daily or weekly schedule look like as a pastor? Was it generally more chaos or more order? And in what ways did you adapt to the chaos? There's probably a story behind this question as well. And we'll wrap up our episode uh, in the mailbag with this question. Uh, I wouldn't characterize my week as a pastor as chaos. Um, However, um, I would say that I gave a lot of margin for just the ordinary things that pop up, unscheduled obligations that especially come from small uh, church contexts, from being the only staff pastor. Um, we had a plurality of eldership, but the other elders were lay elders. So I was the only guy full-time uh, working at uh, tending to the flock Um you know, full time during the week. So let me just give you a rough outline, Jake, on what my week looked like. I certain, you know, certainly wouldn't say um, that this is prescriptive for everybody, um, but this is just sort of an outline of the way that I approached it. Maybe this would be helpful to you. Um, I worked on Mondays. I know a lot of pastors take Mondays off, but I worked Mondays mainly because I was extra tired on Monday and I did not want to give um, that extra fatigue to my family. So I thought, let me push through it. Let me work. Um, I often found, too, that um, if I was skipping Mondays, uh, I would start Tuesday almost feeling, in a sense, behind. So I want to start right, uh, you know, bright and early on Monday morning. Um, and it was my longest day, actually. Um, usually had a meeting that would run late into the evening. Um, you know, had elders meetings, deacons meetings, and men's discipleship group meetings. Um, one of those every Monday evening, um, all month long. So Usually I would get into the office about 7 or 8 um, in the morning, and I you know, would go home for lunch, come back to the office, and I probably wouldn't get home um, from that meeting until sometimes 10, 11 o'clock at night. Um, in some cases, when there were some really significant issues going on in the church, our elders' meetings would perhaps go even till towards midnight. Uh, but Monday was my longest day. And because I was really tired, it tended to be a lot of administrative tasks during the day. So catching up on emails, um, doing some planning for the week, setting up meetings for the you know for the rest of the week. I'd also begin sort of looking over my sermon text for the you know the upcoming Sunday. Um, you know, just a lot of kind of nuts and bolts things uh, around the church and in the office. Uh, that would keep me occupied, keep me productive, but didn't require a whole lot of emotional heavy lifting. Um, yeah, so that's what I do on Monday. Tuesday was really sort of, um, for lack of a better phrase, soul-curing day, if I can call it that. If I had counseling appointments, I tended to schedule them on Tuesday. Um, Tuesday is also when I did most of my visitation, either you know older folks or, or folks in town in their home. Um, usually reserved one Tuesday or so a month for hospital and nursing home visits. If I had other meetings that I knew were going to take a lot of my energy, intellectual, emotional, or otherwise, tended to schedule them on Tuesday. Tuesday was really um, a lot of interpersonal work and more of the heavy lifting of interpersonal work. Uh, Wednesdays, I got out of the office. Wednesday was my heaviest writing and sermon prep day. And I would start pretty early, um, you know, work a full day, and it would tend to be in a coffee shop in the next town over. 
take my computer, my Bible, books, everything, and do most of my sermon writing that day and other kinds of writing as well. I know this differs from pastor to pastor, but, um, you know, writing for my public ministry and for other things um, all tended to be thrown into that day. So it was good just to kind of get out. There aren't any distractions um, that sometimes come with the office, no pop-ins, that sort of thing. Obviously, I'm connected via phone. Um, but usually I'm spending those Wednesdays in the coffee shop getting a lot of writing and sermon prep done. Um, Thursdays um, was for finishing up the sermon and for what I would call fun meetings, right? So I'm ending up my work week, and um, the meetings that I would schedule on Thursday tended to be informal fellowship-type things. I want to get lunch with a fellow elder, you know, go you know, catch him on his lunch break, Um, meetings revolved around discipleship. So when I was discipling, um, you know, a new believer or um, doing leadership development, so, you know, discipling somebody that we're developing as an aspiring elder or aspiring deacon, I tend to, you know, would meet them for lunch or what have you, um, or go visit with church folks um, who, um, shall we say, are somewhat low maintenance. You know, they're fun meetings. Um, on some Thursdays, I would go, you know, visit some of my churchmen on their jobs, you know, and we had a few guys, uh, actually more than a few guys who, you know, independent contractors, blue collar guys. So they're not working, you know, nine to five jobs in an office, but they're outdoors doing a lot of stuff, scrap metal or working on houses. And so Thursdays, sometimes I would go and visit those guys on their job sites and kind of hang out with them and, and fellowship with them. Um, so Thursday was for finishing the sermon and what I would call fun meetings. Uh, then I took Fridays off. Fridays were for my wife, um, especially during the school year. Uh, when the kids are in school, my wife and I would um, either hang out in the house, watch movies, uh, or a lot of times we would leave and go driving around. My last pastorate was in Vermont, so there's lots of fun things to see, beautiful places to go. And so we would do lots of drives through the mountains and go to the little villages and do coffee shops and bookstores and antique shops and all that sort of thing. And then Saturdays I had off as well. That was for my family. And uh, we would do family things together. Um, Sunday morning, I would f- do my sermon manuscripting, get up about 4, 4.30 a.m. Um, so, yes, Sunday was a long, tiring day for me, all things considered. And um, my aim during the week with the sermon was to be done with an outline by the end of the day Thursday. I wouldn't even look at it Friday or Saturday. Sunday morning, I'd pull up that outline and do my manuscript. And that would be sort of the first time in my mind that I'm preaching it. Um, and that's generally how my week looked. Um, you can actually um, look at some more um, questions on margin and boundaries. If you go to episode three of the For the Church podcast, all the way back to episode three, there is an episode on avoiding ministry burnout. And I talk a lot more about this um, chaos question. How do you adapt to chaos um, I'm not sure you need to adapt to it. I think there's a way to sort of minimize it if you can. Um, and the, one of the ways you do that is through the RBM method, which I talk about in Episode 3 of the For the Church podcast. Well, that's what we've got for now. If you've got questions you'd like me to cover in upcoming, um, upcoming episodes, um, use the hashtag FTC Mailbag, hashtag FTC Mailbag on Twitter And uh, I'll be tracking those, compiling those, and we'll pull up some of your questions of the practical, pastoral, and devotional variety on upcoming mailbag episodes of the podcast. Thanks for listening. As always, if you like the podcast, please share it with your friends. Review us on iTunes. Every little bit helps.
And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, Managing Editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.